Listeners, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Nick, Justin, Matt, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Sam, Jory, Shelley, Tara, Connor, the Reverends Langenstein, and Annalise. Thank you for your money. Don't tell Ethan, but we're going to buy him a new mic with it this week. Yeah, his mic is really, really terrible. And, uh, you know, this is... This is the good work that you're supporting is uh, when you support the the podcast, your podcast experience improves. That's true. I mean, that's the motivation behind all of the things that uh, that we ask for when we say if you've got $5 or more a month to spare and would like to help us do stuff like make new and exciting merch, that is new and exciting merch for you, my friends, or live shows, which we assume you would enjoy. I, I have a scheme to do maybe a Halloween themed live show with a panel of horror experts that I think would be great for people who want to listen to it. Uh, that sounds awesome. I'm excited for that one, even though Ian does not do spoopy. Yeah, but you won't have to do it. You'll have to just, you will just listen to people. And I think that'll be a lot of fun. If it works out, I'm not promising. I'm just saying, if you want to help us do things like that, you can join our supporters over at patreon.com slash WTHIAP. You also get access to the patron-only podcast feed, which has fun and exciting bonus content being added all the time. And the patron-only podcast that Ian and I record, which is called Pillow Talk. What did we talk about last night? Well, last night we talked about children's books and death. Okay, so that's probably what... But I have no idea when this episode is going to drop. So I have no idea when it's going to drop either. So, so you could... When you listen to this episode, friends, who knows what the episode of Philo Talk is going to be. It's a surprise. The only way for you to know is to subscribe to Pillow Talk by joining What the Hell's a Pastor on Patreon. And you exactly. get access to the Patreon perk pillow talk. Did I say exactly. pillow talk enough times? Is that I think yes, I think that is perfect. You know, I think the episode with the children's books is episode seventy, which means that if you go and listen to it, you will have access to sixty-nine nice other episodes of Pillow Talk if you subscribe to the Patreon. But if you are not in the position to support us financially, there are still ways you can help us out. You can subscribe to us on the podcasting app of your choice, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, share us on the platform of your choice, or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Or just keep listening, because that's good, too. All these things appease the algorithm bots. Feed our bots. You have to say, and now here's the show. And now, here's the show. One, two, five, nine! Robin, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we draw on our experiences and challenges as current and former pastors to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. This week on the podcast, we're welcoming back Rabbi Mike to talk about his new book, Let's Talk, A Rabbi Speaks to Christians. Ian is also with us as a co-host this week to help us kind of talk through the book and all the things we learned from it. So I'm I'm just so pumped to dig into this. So Rabbi Mike, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. My pleasure. It's always, always fun to be with you guys. So thank you for the invitation. 
So great to be in conversation with you as well. If you want to hear more from Rabbi Mike, I will link to our previous episodes with him in the description so you can catch up on on what we've talked about previously. But I just kind of want to jump into some of the mind blowing or the aha moments that I had from the book, because like we were talking about before, I like to think that I know a lot of stuff. You know, I've had some schooling and there were things that I was like, I never would have thought like one of the ones that really stuck out to me is I had known about the mistranslation that Jerome did that said Moses had horns. And I was like, isn't that funny? In medieval art, Moses had horns. And I think of it as like a cute, fun fact, Easter egg thing to tell people. Never occurred to me that it plays into Jews are children of the devil. <laughs> like, I just never connected that. And so I'm, I am learning... As much as I am trying to be aware of anti-Jewishness or anti-Semitism in biblical texts and in Christianity, every, every day I feel like I learn something new. So that was the first one that like jumped out at me. Yeah, I mean, what we're talking about is, you know, the Hebrew word karan, kufreshenun, and supposed to be radiant or shining. <clears throat> and St. Jerome, uh, when he's translating this to Latin, he makes a mistake that people make. Right, Quran means radiance. Karen means horns, and so he had the view that Moses was horned. This then inspired Michelangelo, Donatello to have Moses with horns. Um, you can see there are famous statues of him with little bumps or or stained glass windows with him with horns, and this was a very easy connection that was made by Christians of the time or anti-Semites in regards to Gospel of John, with Jews being the offspring of the devil, offspring of Satan, the father of lies. Uh, if Satan has or the devil has horns, well, of course, the Jews have horns. And this became a very big and still is a anti-Semitic understanding. Um, if you go to even today, particular schools of thought, certain Catholic schools or certain Christian schools, as a Jew, this has happened to me, it's happened to dear friends, they'll ask where your horns are, they'll ask where your bumps are. What? 100% happens. In high school and in college, we would do this a lot. My Jewish friends and I would sort of compare stories of when we would we would go places and they would genuinely ask if they could feel the top of my head, feel the bumps. Um, to feel the horns, because to remember that the Vulgate was the translation, right, um, up until like early 20th century for particular Christian denominations. And so that was the translation. Uh, there was nothing else. It was simply that's how it was. So Moses was horned, which means Jews had horns. This is what was taught in curriculum, either officially or unofficially. Then that led to like, well, Jews have horns, Jews have tails, Jews have all, whatever. And you start to see images of Jews in particular art expressed that way. Um, and it was, again, a very easy connection to what John was speaking about in the gospel, uh, gospel of John being, you know, children of the devil, the father of lies. And unfortunately, an important and uh, destructive ramification of a mistranslation made by one person. But as we talked about in the book and elsewhere, translation can be that that problematic. Yeah, well, and that's something that I really appreciate about the book is that it gives you, uh, you start off with the first century CE context of um, 
of Judaism in the first century and Christianity and how, um, how that separation happens and how both Christianity and Judaism grow over time. And so like you have, you have a whole context for how a single mistranslation can then blow up into something like this, which is just like, it's a perfect picture of actually language really deeply matters because we've built a culture where language matters. And it's so easy for people to, to fall into landmines as you call them in the book, but like landmines that are doing real damage to people. I, I think, I think so often when we talk about interfaith stuff or my experience of interfaith stuff has been, Oh, isn't it cute that we can all get together and celebrate Thanksgiving and, and the gifts of what we see. And that's fine. But also like, there's this other side to it too. And I, I love that you do both of those in the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an important point that you're mentioning about language. I mean, you can tell who has gone to higher ed, who has gone and mm-hmm. taken particular courses, you know, who's had to read David Bellows or Foucault or um, people who investigate and discuss the philosophy of language, the impact of language, and applying that to interreligious dialogue. You know, if you leave that out, if you ignore it, or if you blatantly dismiss it, as people do, we're talking about, you know, it's important that we use these words, or whatever, you're basically dismissing an entire history of the power of language and how powerful words can be for better or for worse. And so religion is not immune to that. And this is just one of the many examples of when language takes over, a single word mistranslated can lead to centuries of anti-Semitism. And while certain people would, you know, deny that we've got the receipts yeah yeah Yeah, exactly so so much of let's talk is focused on scriptures because so much of uh christian practice in particular grows out of our understanding of scriptures we talked before about um how the hebrew bible and the old testament are not the same book they are they are different but i want to ask about the terminology for the term Hebrew Bible. Do you know when that became like in vogue to refer to it? Because I feel as somebody who like, I learned first that the Bible is the Christian Bible. And then now I'm learning about the Hebrew Bible. And I feel like that term is maybe meant to parallel so that we see the Torah and Tanakh on the same level as Christian scriptures. But like, do you know where that term came from? Is it is it trying to reclaim the idea of what is a Bible? Can I use terms like Jewish scriptures and Torah and Tanakh instead of Hebrew Bible? <laughs> Again, you know, I think this is a great segue from our discussion about language, right? Even what is the name um, and what is appropriate for calling our section of of what is called the Bible. So I'm not sure exactly when the term Hebrew Bible was coined, but one of the main reasons it was used was because, one, people didn't know what Tanakh meant, Mm. and they needed an English sort of equivalent, and it's too long to say Torah, prophets, writings. But it was, I believe a dismissal or a fight against the idea of Old Testament, right? Mm. Um, When something is old, it is dismissed, it is unused, it is replaceable. And when our Bible is referred to as the Old Testament, one, as I speak on the book, that's factually incorrect. They're different books. But to say you use the Old Testament is not only incorrect because we don't, but to say yours is the old version. Mm-hmm. you know, and ours is the new version. And there are some, from a language point of view, linguistic point of view, there's some 
issues with that. But the other thing you mentioned, so I would say Hebrew Bible or Tanakh is what we do. The other thing we'd mention is if you look up scripture, Google something or whatever it is, it does have Christian connotation to it. It's become, oh. whether whether fair or not, right, the idea of scripture is a Christian term. I That being said, I've used the word scripture to say, you know, we're talking about the Hebrew scriptures or, or this is from scripture or whatever it is, because I don't think it's necessarily fair or accurate for Christians to have just that term. But overall, it is a bit of Christianese. And so Hebrew scriptures could mean two things. One, um, it could mean sections from the Old Testament because it's through the lens of Christianity. Or, you know, if if it is a term through Christianese, it could be, and I hope that it would be in a positive sense, equalizing the power of Christian scripture Jewish scripture, Hebrew scripture, whatever it is. I doubt that though. Mm. Jewish scripture is not something I would hear. I don't think I've ever heard it really. Um, I've, I've heard Hebrew scripture. And I think that is a Christian term for Old Testament writings. You know, this comes from the Hebrew scripture instead of saying this comes from the Old Testament. Whether that's fair or not, I don't know. Um, but I would, I last time I looked up scripture, it did the, the, definition did have sort of a this refers to christian verses of the bible you know i was like well okay bummer yeah you know yeah just looking at the the google like i did it if you do oh good you double check me yeah i double check just to uh, define like i did google search define scripture and the first entry was the sacred writings of christianity contained in the bible and then um the second answer the second definition below that is the sacred writings of another religion which you, you mentioned really briefly about how so much of religiosity and religion, religious dialogue in general is shaded or viewed through the lens of, of Christianity Yes, these days. And that really can hamper or cloud um, interfaith dialogue. No, I think you're right. I, I think people confuse the words Christianity with religion and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So when people say, oh, you know, religion is this, they're not really talking about religion because religion, you know, as Pascal Voyer talks about, I mean, that's Western, Eastern, tribal, ancestor. I mean, like religion is a big word. However, most people associate it uh, with certainly Western faiths, particularly Christian denominations, right? And so we see that a lot on Twitter. We see people say, you know, I have such a problem with religion. They try to convert people. And I'm like, well, particular religions within religion yeah. uh, try to convert people, but not all religion. You know, you don't have a problem with religion. You have a problem with this aspect of particular faiths or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 I'm a big proponent of say Christian when you mean Christian. Right. Absolutely. I'm also a big proponent of say evangelical or Christian nationalist when you mean evangelical or Christian nationalist, not to give other Christians an excuse because we, we are responsible for each other and should do more. But, um, what, so people know, so that you can avoid the hashtag, not all Christians in the comments of like, no, this yes. is, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and listen, I, I'm guilty of that as well. Right. Um, it's very easy to generalize and, and say, you know, this is part of Christianity or Christians in general, when an issue is, I would say, um, being brought up or in the spotlight at this moment by 
a particular amount of, you know, American evangelical or, or whatever it is. Usually I use the word when I'm talking about the past, um, mm. you know, Christians in general, because I don't know if there's a linguistic way to say medieval European Christians did this or um, in the Rhineland during this time, Christians. I think Christianity had a, had a wide sort of understanding during those particular moments. And so I'll say Christians or Christianity in those moments. But I think that it is fair that if we're talking about certain issues, certain behaviors that are occurring in this country, it's, I think it's okay as long as we're not doing, and I get this a lot, right? That not all Christians, I'm not one of those Christians. Like, I know you're not, but this is a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is a part of, you know, who you are. So I'll say that, you know, I appreciate up to a point when an ally makes themselves known and say to me, not me, Mike, I support you. Great. Wonderful. Good to know. Then what? Right. Right. If someone were to tell me, you know, Hasidic Jews or Orthodox Jews or Jews in general, you know, do this. Certainly I would say, hey, you're speaking out a particular denomination within Judaism. Let me tell you how we respond to it, how they feel about us, how we feel about them and what we're doing to try and combat that, you know, because they are a representative of who we are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea of a fake Jew never comes up. The idea of a real Jew never comes up, even when we're talking about messianics. Right. We don't use those words. Um, We use the words Christian. But um, there's no such thing as a inauthentic Jews simply because they are not expressing what we believe as a particular denomination of Judaism to be Jewish morals and values. They're still Jewish. I mean, to be fair, there is an ethno-religious aspect to that, ethnocentric religion to that within Judaism that is missing from Christianity, but you guys get the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, for listeners who feel like this is only part of the conversation, there's definitely more of this in the book and in a bunch of different places that I, I really appreciated in your introduction where you were like, I need to position myself. This is who I am. This is what I've done. I acknowledge that there are other people out there. There are people who would disagree with me, but like this, this is what I'm trying to do. And this is how I'm going to do it. I, that's something that Uh, Maybe we all feel more of a need to do these days. I feel like there are a lot of white European male Christians who are like, well, my opinion is the opinion. But like having that, being able to say, this is what I think, this is who I am, this is where I'm at. um, That contextualization is really key. Uh, And that comes up over and over again in the book. And I, I appreciate, I appreciate context. It's one of my favorites. Thank you. I tried very hard in the book. You know, there are moments where I would say this, 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 however, it's not the whole story. It's more complicated. And here's the other issues that go on because it's always more complicated. You know, I, I wrote a 200 page book, you know, it's this thick and it, um, you know, if I wanted to go into all of that, it would be 400, 500 pages and no one would mm-hmm. read it. This is a basic starter guide handbook to propel and to inspire Christians to say, you know, I didn't think about that. Let me go research a little bit more about that. How about that? Um, and there um, are other books or hopefully other books on the way that I will write that will help with help with those. But um, it's always a little bit more complicated, certainly than in, you know, 145 characters, certainly within a 200 page book. Yeah. And I, um, hmm, I'm trying to think, I have two questions that I want to go to from this. I'm trying to pick the one that I want to go to first. Okay. Um, yeah. So 
I, I want to circle back to the anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic passages in the New Testament that are that are super problematic, especially the ones in the Gospels. But I want to start first by when I, talking about one of those other aha moments. I'm realizing I don't know a, enough at all about first century CE Judaism. Uh, I know like the Christian narrative of how we formed, but I know nothing about all of all of all of it. And the, the big thing that I, I like texted Ian and was like, I have to ask you about this. <laughs> the Sanhedrin. I had thought the Sanhedrin was as established of a historical fact as Pilate being the governor of Judea, but it <laughs> is apparently not. Can you, no. do you mind spoiling that part of the book for our listeners? Sure, and explain more I, about that? Happy to, happy to give a spoiler alert. Um, one of the major misconceptions that uh, of the many that exist within the ideas of what first century look Judaism looked like through the lens of the Gospels, which were historically inaccurate, is the presence and power of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, which is um, a, a court system um, that was used in Jewish communities, certain Jewish communities, um, to regulate Jews with Jews, right? Um, Jews throughout history have lived uh, until 1948, you know, even during we're, we're due, during the Second Temple period and before, um, from there to there, uh, we've lived under the rule of other people's laws. Um, and so there's a whole thing to go into and it's like, do Jews even have their own history or we just have parts, are we parts of other people's history? One of those is the idea of the Sanhedrin trial and that we would live under the rules and laws of uh, the state Right. In fact, there's a Talmud principle that says um, the law of the land is the law, meaning that like if you are living in a country and there's a there's a state law that says something, this is what's in, in the Talmud, a fifth century text, and it goes against Jewish law, you still have to obey it, right? Because hmm. you're living under somebody else's law. You, you respect the law of, of the land. This is very different from the idea of the laws of God being higher and all that sort of stuff that you hear from certain Christian fundamentalists. That does not exist in Judaism. Um, an example of that, and then I, I'm, you know, I told you there'd be tangents. I'm getting back to the Sanhedrin, but an example mm -hmm. of that would be um, here in the United States. There are particular states that when someone dies, uh, autopsies are required in certain states um, for certain reasons. Autopsy is not um, something that is allowed in Judaism. However. Jews will allow that to happen because we follow the laws of that state. So that's a uh, an example of that. However, during you know times of antiquity, Jews were left alone or not cared about or separated into their own shtetls or pale of settlement or whatever it is. And there were court systems to deal internally with Jewish issues. I'll say this right away. One, they did not have the power of the state. Mm-hmm. To say that a Jewish organization court system had any influence over any state, let alone the Roman Empire, is beyond laughable. I mean, right. all you have to do is look at Jews living where we were living under empires. To say, that's ridiculous, right? Now, no one cared what, what we what we thought. The the third thing is is that the Sanhedrin trial, the Sanhedrin dealt with civil issues, maybe a criminal issue from time to time. But it did not give out death sentences that that is beyond its reach. And so all of these things, uh, when you start to read 
about the Sanhedrin trial in the gospel, you start to look from a, what is realistic? Uh, The Sanhedrin did not have the ability to consign Jesus to the cross. That that was a Roman punishment. That's nothing nothing they they would say. And again, the idea that um, that Pontius Pilate would honor or listen or care about what a little Jewish trial says is is um, you know absurd. Um, you know, the Beit Din, the Sanhedrin dealt with things of Jewish law, right? Ritual matters, um, practices, right? It, it had authority over Jewish life. But it understood that that over control of what actually happened was what was the Roman Empire, and especially when it came to capital punishment, which Jews, you know, don't don't believe in. Um, through the through the Talmud, it it um, erases any possibility that you would ever execute capital punishment. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's that's one thing that that also is that you know yes, it says there are death penalties for things in the Torah and the Tanakh. But if you read the Talmud, they make it the rabbis make it almost impossible for it to happen because inside they knew that that's not morally correct. Um, they couldn't say the Torah was wrong, but they could say, well, this and this and this and that, and it, it just didn't happen. So unfortunately, we get this idea through the Gospels that the Sanhedrin trial occurred. One, I think they said it happened sort of like ad hoc at night, um, mm-hmm. like everyone got together. That's ridiculous that you know you can't get that many Jews together for you know dinner at a Chinese restaurant on Christmas <laughs> and two that it had you know that it accused Jesus of all these things and condemned him to death and then you know had an association with Pontius Pilate and Pontius like what the Sanhedrin said all of this leads into the you know the old conspiracy theories of how powerful Jews are behind the scenes. The Sanhedrin trial is that first view of that dark, smoky room, you know, that people believe in, whether it's, you know, the idea of Jews running the world, the Jews that are running the world bank, the Rothschilds, um, the QAnon supporters, the, you know, the, um, uh, what's our, what's our latest Rothschild? Oh, who's uh, the guy who's supposed to be paying the, yeah, paying BLM. Soros. 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 So Soros, Soros is the new Rothschild control, whatever. I mean, like all of it is a dog whistle for that dark, smoky room. The Sanhedrin was that first example of that. And they say, well, wow, look at this. They could overcome the they they influence Pontius Pilate and the Roman Empire. They've been controlling it all along. You know, it, it leads to all these, you know, they're not just words on a page, right? They lead mm-hmm. to terrible things in the future. And so if you ask a Jewish historian or even Christian historians, frankly, the idea of the Sanhedrin trial is it's absurd. It's power, it's existence at the time, whether it even occurred, the fact that it would handle these issues, not at all possible. Um, you know, it's far more, um, it's fairly improbable that all of these things would have been broken by, by this corrupt group as they are, as they are showed. Right. Um, it's just too many things that just don't make sense. Um, but that's a, that's a hard argument to make. Right. Um, it's sort of a trying to prove a negative. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I so th- I think this goes into like something that gets really uncomfortable for a lot of Christians. The, as soon as you start to poke at it or pull at this thread, is the like um, the idea that even our gospel accounts can be mythic, right? Can yeah, uh, can can be myths and and aren't telling the story as like it would have happened 
if you like got into a time machine and went back to Passover in the year 33 CE, right? Um, right, right. If we if you just think about um, the how how it, how it all went down, we all know that Pontius Pilate was crucifixion happy. <laughs> he was right. crucifying people left and right, and like Rome was like, dude, you gotta you gotta chill out. You're <laughs> we're, gonna, we're recalling you. You're putting too many people up on crosses. There's no there's no uh, way that Pilate would have even hemmed and hawed at this. Like Jesus comes in, does his. Uh, triumphal entry, Palm Passion Sunday thing, uh, maybe does the temple thing, but that in and of itself is like, no, you're, you're done. You're gone. You're crucified. And then you're like, but the, that's the, that's not what we have in the stories. We have these stories right. of, a, of a week long event that things happen and you got betrayal and it's high drama and high, um, uh, pardon the pun, high passion. And, yeah. um, you're, it's these the, like the the stories that are in the Gospels are telling a, a deeper theological truth, maybe that uh, matters to Christians. But I think, especially post Enlightenment, we can't wrap our head around the idea that something can be both a myth and true. I I think you're absolutely right. Um, I and I you know I fully agree with you that um, more likely. Um, Jesus was seen as an insurrectionist or someone who was against the empire and was crucified next to many people um, who had too many people following them or said a bad thing about Rome. That's all it took, right? You know, it is possible that Jesus stirred the pot a little bit as a historical figure, most likely crucified for breaking Roman law of how many people you're allowed to gather at a certain time or, you know, fighting against the, uh, looking like you're, fighting against the empire you know remember that this is a delicate time right now um, yeah. and it's you know 40 years later where it comes to a head at 70 ce when rome shows exactly what it thinks about people rebelling um, and squashes everything destroys the temple and then towards the late gospels you have the bar Kokhba rebellion which is the same thing happens again right um which leads to this idea of christians wanting to very much distance themselves um from jews because jews are the you know we're not happy living under uh you know, Roman rule. Um, Jesus was a Jew who was not happy living under Roman rule and was vocal about it. Um, he was crucified next to probably hundreds of people, as you said. Um, and I think uh, we run into real issue, real walls when someone says to me, well, the, you know, the, the gospels are historical truth. If someone says that to me, then they're not speaking from someone who has studied the Gospels. That is something that has been mm -hmm. told to them and they have to understand it. You have to look in sort of reverse of someone's like, well, if you challenge that, their faith is challenged and they start to fall apart. Like, I'm sorry to hear that, but like, sorry. But with when you get to things like, you know, when Mark was written, Matthew's edits, Luke, you know, Luke's edits after that, a rational person, you know, who is not even necessarily particularly well studied would be able to say, wait a minute, what was going on? What was the context? Why are there three synoptic gospels that sound different? And how can all three of them be true? We can't just like mix it all together. It doesn't take that much to start to challenge the historical accuracy of the gospel, let alone any biblical story. Mm -hmm. However, again, we have to look at that from the reverse and saying that that is something that people will refuse to do and fight tooth and nail against because if they do they feel that their faith 
is built on sand and everything will start to crumble. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I tell you this as a rabbi and a biblical scholar, my faith has nothing to do with whether, you know, the Torah is um, allegory or, or historical truth. And Christians, their, their mind explodes when I say that. How can you possibly do that? You know, Orthodox Jews hate that I say that. How can you possibly do that? You know, is it just an intellectual exercise? Well, um, sometimes, yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're fallible human beings who wrote this, right? And if you, if you add into problematic aspects like, uh, you know, the Torah coming from Sinai, it's perfect. Well, there's not much I can do with that. Um, Mark and Matthew and Luke are divine authors and God spoke through their pen. The, the, um, the Septuagint was, you know, 70 perfectly, you know, I mean, like once you get into those inarguable arguments, uh, there's not much to talk about, right? They right. are in place for a reason to stop you from asking the questions that a normal person would ask. Um, you know, all you have to do is study translation for two seconds, um, learn a different language and hear someone say, um, you know, we don't really have a word for that in French. Here's what we do have. There's not really a translation. And then you think, wait a minute, that could be true for Hebrew and Greek and Latin. And, oh my God, the, you know, it doesn't take much. So uh, those are blockades, barriers. Um, the gospel is perfectly historically accurate. Shh, don't say anything else, right? That's a blockade to stop you from the human mind, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking. I'm uh, blanking on what um, our friend Galileo said before he was, um, you know, murdered by the church. That's um, not what... Sorry, let me let me correct that historical thing. Just as a science and religion person, yeah. he was only put under house arrest. He wasn't even tortured. He was shown the tools oh, of torture, so he wasn't executed. Oh, by he the was church. shown the. I'm sorry. <laughs> Here's what we might do to you. Um, right, which is bad, but that. it's not the same. <laughs> right. Is, is that is that that I find it hard to believe that God would give me a mind and not want me to? Yes. That, that, that yeah, yes. Yeah. Basically, that's the paraphrase of it. It's like. Why would God give me a critical mind and then and then being told not to use it? Right. Um, and, you know, the church put him in a room and said, here's all the torture devices. Stop talking, um, which yeah. is, I think, so much more of a fun story. Anyway, thank you for correcting that. That is now going to yeah. be like something awesome I will talk about for years. The fun little extra bit of gossip with it is that um, the Pope had been a big fan of Galileo and then Galileo made a fool of the Pope in his book. And so the Pope was like, screw you. We're going to put you under house arrest forever. Of course. So of course. it's just it's yeah. like it's full celebrity drama. It's great. It is, as most things are, as we as we <laughs> see, um, most things are political or, um, you know, some sort of gossip or drama. Um, so thank you for that. That's an awesome story. But yes, that's the idea is Galileo was on something. You don't you know, if you start to look critically and mm -hmm. there are Jewish scholars who do the same thing. Ibn, Ibn Ezra, Maimonides, all these people who start to say, uh, uh this is a problem. I looked at this and, uh, you know, it conflicts and, you know, and there's this phrase that we see in uh, later rabbinic writings, um, you know, from, um, you know, maybe 11th century to 16th century, which translates to um, those who understand, understand, mm. right? I'm not going to say it because I can't say it, but you know what I'm saying. This is an issue he who understands, understands, right? And then let's move past it. 
because you can't say it outright because it won't get published. You know, like you, right. it, it's blasphemy or whatever the Jewish version of that is. So in the same way, that's what we're fighting against uh, with that aspect. And it's really a tragic story to that because the Gospels, the certainly synoptic Gospels, are these beautiful pieces of allegory for reasons, for political reasons, for who who are the people writing it? Who are they afraid of? What are they trying to do? How are they trying to shape Jesus um, into this character 40 years later, two generations later? A much more interesting conversation than everything in it is true. Goodbye. Which right. is not particularly interesting, at least to me. No, I, I definitely agree. As somebody who grew up with that literalism and then had to deconstruct it. And um, that, w- that was the funny thing about going to seminaries. Everybody's like, well, you'll lose your Jesus. I had already done that work, right? Like right. You, you read <laughs> next to each other and you're like, I got to think about this again. So yeah, yeah. I find that it is, especially in the science and religion dialogue too, if any scripture is literally true from the Bible, then we just can't have a conversation. Like if you think the earth was created in this number of days, I am, I appreciate your tenacity. I can't talk to you. Right. So I, yeah, I think that's a, especially since this book is here to help us have better dialogue and to, to put the dialogue on a more even footing between Christians and Jews, uh, which I thought was such an important thing to say in the introduction to the book you have to kind of acknowledge that, well, there are some starting points. We have to be able to talk about things. Right. I did try to be gentle about that in, you know, in saying that if that is your theology, like when I would teach, right. And someone would make a point that, you know, the earth is 6,000 years old or, you know, the Torah came from Sinai. What I would say very gently is, you know, that's not the theology we're speaking about today. Mm, That's good. You can, talk about it elsewhere. We're just not talking about that today. And I tried very hard in my book to be like, look, in order to read this book, you have to let go a little, open your mind a little bit to the ideas of this, because otherwise you'll get to that introduction and you'll throw the book away, Mm -hmm. which, you know, you're welcome to do. It's a free country. Um, Especially after you already bought the book. Also (laughs) fine. Right. Yeah. Do whatever you want with it. Like, you know, after you've bought it, burn it for all I care, but I, I got the money. But the truth is like, the idea is you will miss out on the education mm-hmm. and the aha moments that will hopefully strengthen or challenge in a positive way your faith, right? It's not meant to stop people from being Christian. It's not meant to insult the religion of Christianity. It's not meant to, um, you know, diminish the faith of billions of people around the world. It is meant to say, maybe you haven't thought about it this way, because why would you? No one's taught you this. Why would they? Here's an opportunity to learn something from a different perspective. And you I don't know if you'd be surprised. I was surprised at how many people said to me, you know, what do I care what you think? You're not Christian. Um, why would I read anything that's not by a Christian author? And I was like, well, lots of reasons. Um, (laughs) you know, I can think of lots of reasons why you would read views outside your bubble. Otherwise you are consciously creating blinders for yourself, which is comfortable and cozy, but, um, why would you do that? But that's something that I do here. And that's not, I mean, that's the market for the book, but that's not who's going to read the book. 
right? If someone has said, I'm not reading something that a Jewish person writes about Christianity, what do we care? Um, that's exactly the market of people who should read the book, who probably won't. Yeah. You, you say at one point that, um, Christians are more effective in talking to Christians about these things rather than Jewish people trying to convince Christians of something. And when I read that, I was like, I don't know if that's true. I've been convinced by a lot of Jewish people, but I have also (laughs) trained myself to listen outside of myself. Um, And the people who need to hear it the most are probably going to have to hear it from a Christian, whether that Christian does a great job of explaining it or not. At least that Christian can open the door because a Jewish person often can't. I mean, that is basically the purpose for the book. Right. 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 I was bartending last night and a Catholic priest came in and we started talking about my book. And I said, you know, I sure I could go to your church and talk, talk about this. How more powerful would it be is if one of your congregants said something and you were to say, you know, actually, this is what it, you know, and you, you'd be able to go and look at my book and be able to say, right, that's not right. And teach on it. And mm-hmm. wow, they would listen to you father. They would listen to you, pastor. They would listen to you because they would. They don't know me from Adam. I'm outside of the Christian bubble. They don't know my intentions. They don't know my agenda. There's certainly a distrust of Judaism within certain denominations of Christianity. Mm -hmm. But within the ideas of, uh, in the realm and arena of Christian clergy who are able to and are willing to engage in this kind of learning, would then be able to turn around and have a resource to teach it well, right? Maybe you, you've heard about this, you know, as you said, I, you, you said this to begin, right? Like, I'm pretty well read. I'm pretty well known. I still had aha moments, right? Mm-hmm. Those aha moments are for you, right? you know, to make you better at what you do so that you can then be a better teacher and inspire more people who will not hear from me and not read my book, or maybe they will afterwards. Great. But like the idea is the message gets out, the education gets out. Um, and that's really the purpose of the book altogether. Yeah. That's, I was going to ask you why do this as a book instead of as like Twitter threads. And it's because the, the knowledge has to go beyond Twitter, right? I've yes. So I mean, much the truth Twitter is threads, but. I've, I've done both, mm-hmm. you know, and I've done podcasts, you know, a priest and a rabbi and all that sort of stuff. But the truth is, the distribution and accessibility of a book. It can sit on a clergy person's or lay person's or board member's shelf as a resource. They could read it or not read it and use it and pick it or whatever it is, but it's there. It's Mm -hmm. tangible and they've got it. Um, As I speak about in in the introduction, this book is a basically an inspiration from the phone calls that I would get from clergy like you guys. Mike, what was this story about? Is this okay? I want to double check to make sure I'm not being insulting, right? Well, you don't, you know, not everybody calls me and not everybody knows me, but this is that phone call. Um, this is that phone call in book form for mm. you to be able to say, you know, I've always wondered about Good Samaritan and I've always wondered about the, um, the fable of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the vineyard the vineyards and the, you know, I've always wondered about what is the difference between the, you know, these books and that books and translate? Well, now you've got it. You don't have to call Rabbi Mike or you call your local rabbi. You should anyway. We would welcome that. But here is something tangible that you can highlight and write notes about and dog ear and, you know, whatever, um, write sermons about. It's there. And uh, that was the, that's the, the goal of it is for it to sit on your shelf when you need it. 
um, because, you know, there are issues that are not taught in Christian seminaries or, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who are keeping up with Christian scholarship and historical stuff. Not everybody reads biblical archaeology magazine like I do, right? Like right. there's there's questions that you might have when you're writing a sermon or you're teaching an education thing that you might want to say, or if you get a, a question, a great question from someone about about this, or you see hear something that doesn't sound right, you can say, you know, I think Rabbi Mike spoke about this. And then you've got it as a resource and you've got the graphs and you've got the tables and you've got, you know, you've got what you need. And you've got the, if you go in the back, you've got the citations, which means, you know, every single thing I talked about, every verse, every whatever it is, it's there. You can go look at it and you can expand on it, write a sermon on it. Like, that's what I want. Take it and run with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I'm preaching on this Sunday. I don't remember what the text is. I was going to look it up. Uh, but I had in mind like, oh, now I know if I, if I'm going to encounter an anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic verse, uh, what, what can I do with it? Yeah. Ian, right. do you have something you want to jump in with? Oh, I was just, just to chastise any Christian that is telling you that, oh, I don't need to listen to you because you're Jewish or because you're not Christian. Um, this might be, this might be navel gazing for this podcast. I'm sure that this is not uh, anything that any of our listeners think or feel with any semblance of sincerity. But man, like what a just s- sad faith that you that you must have if this is if you think that you cannot hear uh, or or receive wisdom from people that um, aren't from your own tradition aren't from your religion i i know that just from from following you rabbi mike from uh following so so much of twitter that like and and the wisdom that is shared in those spaces freely that i am a better christian because of that wisdom that you have to share and and just it's it's a just what a what a sad statement if you are like man I don't need to read this book or hear what this person has to say because you're a rabbi and not my particular brand of, of Christian. Right. And I think that's important to remember that it does not limit itself to Jewish Christian relations, right? There are Christians who will say, you're not my brand of Christian, so you're wrong. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to read about you. And, you know, I think back to, I forget what it was, it must have been something like eighth grade history or something. We're talking about, um, you know, kings during the, the royal period of medieval Europe, where someone, ha- you know, the king has a copy of the Bible and Machiavelli, the prince in their nightstand. And that's it. That's all they need. Right. And, and that's along the same lines as when you hear someone say the Bible is the only book you need. Right. Right. That's pure missionary talk. Right. That comes straight from the missionary, like going into the fields and say you've never seen a book before. This is the only book you need. It's self-explanatory. You don't need it. You know, and what a disaster. Right. <laughs> what a disa- absolute disaster. And the other thing I want to say is that it goes both ways. Right. Is that, yes, you know, Twitter has I learn a great deal from my colleagues about this. You know, I trip over things and I make mistakes, certain things. But when I engage with when I'm not fighting off against, you know, particular Christians, the Christians that I do get to engage with who can 
help me, you know, there are certain things that I still don't know. I mean, I certainly I've devoted a great deal of my adult life to learning about Christian history and studying the Gospels and New Testament and all that sort of stuff. But there's there's a wealth of things that I don't know um, or things that I thought that I was, you know, taught. Take the Galileo thing. I was so convinced I was done. I would I would teach that that he was executed. And thank goodness, here I am with a Christian to say, oh, not quite. That's that's the goal, right? Um, but it mm-hmm. takes a particular mindset, one, to be open to that, and two, to appreciate it, to say this is this is the goal, to be a better and more learned person, mm-hmm. whether that's a more learned Jew, more learned Christian, more learned human being. And so, yeah, I'll read your book. You know, write a book, I'll read it. Um, that sounds awesome. And I'll make highlights and notes, and we're going to talk about it. That's the intellectual and thus emotional connection that occurs in proper interreligious dialogue. And so I'm, I'm thrilled, Ian, that you, you have that as a resource. The squabblings of Jay Witter somehow to you are productive um, and educational. You know, we love that you've got a, you've got a cup to, the, you know, to that room um, to hear us. Um, you know, talk over each other. Um, and we, we, you know, we appreciate that. We, you know, we, we welcome you to that table. And that, that is, um, you know, I agree that it is intensely frustrating when um, a helpful aspect, such as the book that I've, you know, spent a year and a half, you know, writing and researching is outright rejected, um, simply because I'm not, on the team. I'm not in the tribe, you know? Um, and, um, as you said, what a, what a sad, weak sort of faith that must be, you know, such a shakable Jenga tower, mm-hmm. maybe wobble that bottom piece. Um, and, um, I don't, do I talk about Jenga in my book? It's one of my like favorite metaphors. You actually don't. I was, I was waiting for it. Oh, you talked God. about it on the it's podcast. one of my favorite metaphors. It's got to go in the next book. Um, it's just such an incredible metaphor for um, interreligious dialogue, historical scholarship, religious scholarship, biblical criticism, um, you know, that your Jenga tower will still stand, even mm-hmm. if you listen to my lesson. Don't worry. Um, you know, and if you're so afraid of it, then you're building a Jenga tower on sand. Stop doing that. Right. You know, it's going to fall over anyway, eventually. I think I think Jesus has something to say about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. That's true. That's true. You're right. Exactly. So, you know, I should, I should get like a partnership with Jenga. I talk about them so much. Yeah. There you go. But yeah. So that's the, I mean, that's the idea. So I appreciate, I appreciate that thought. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about how we can translate what we learn in the book into practice in the mini sode, if you've got time to stick around for one. Yeah. I've got a few minutes. Yeah. Okay, but before we transition to the mini-sode, I want to ask one more question that really sprung up just straight from the book that I hope is something you can answer in eight minutes, say. Okay. You talk about Christian Christian satyrs, which we should not do because Jesus never celebrated a Passover satyr. That was, that was developed afterwards. But I, as somebody who did not realize that Jesus was Jewish until I was a teenager, I saw Christian satyrs as this way of like reclaiming Jesus's Jewishness. And so do you have recommendations or thoughts about how we can both understand Jesus's position as a Jew, but still be Christian and not be appropriative? Yes. I don't know if I could answer that question in eight minutes. <laughs> such, an, <laughs> such an expansive 
question and and uh, and there's so much to dig into there. There's the, the the idea of the Seder, but I think in general, what you're asking is such a beautiful question. I mean, for your listeners, yes, um, Jesus was Jewish, um, but Jesus was a first century Jew, not a modern Jew. The Seder right. is, you know, is a much later modern Jewish um, invention. Um, when I say modern Jew, we, you know, now it's been, you know, changed or whatever it is, but it's probably 800 years later um, altogether in what it was. And so Christian Seders are our appropriation of, um, of Judaism and a Jewish ritual in it. And it's, you know, it's inappropriate and insulting. But um, that being said, yes, there are ways for Christians to, one, they should know that Jesus was Jewish and understand the Jewish world that he lived in, in first century Judaism, and to learn about that from a historical point of view. What was going on during that time, the political climate, the Jewish climate, um, all of those things, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, right? Where, where, what was going on? That's something that I wish every Christian and every Jew, frankly, knew more about. Second Temple history is is something, it's a, you know, that's an elective you got to take. Yeah. People should know about it. But um, yes, there are beautiful ways to connect the Jewish roots of Christianity without going too far either way. What I mean by that is, um, you know, those who say that, yes, Jesus was Jewish, but whoosh, boy, that's gone. We're not anywhere near Jewish. Jews are bad. We don't blah, blah, blah. Right. That's that side. And then there's the other side, which we've seen now outside in, in the um, evangelical movement of the Messianics, where um, they are sort of cosplaying modern Judaism um, right. in the hopes of, um, you know, expressing Jesus's Jewishness, except that um, Jesus was very limited in his Jewishness. And modern Judaism, rabbinical Judaism, did not exist during his time and is now the basis of all Jews. First century Judaism living in a time where the temple stood, we have no connection to that anymore. There's no temples. There's there's no sacrifices. There's none of that anymore. Modern Judaism, rabbinical Judaism replaced that. That being said, to learn about the historical Jesus and the Jewish rituals that he did do, right? He did most likely observe the Paschal Passover sacrifice, right? Um, he did probably observe um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? The two things that came together in, in rabbinical Judaism to create the modern Seder, right? Um, he did probably know about Hanukkah, how he celebrated it, who knows, um, but he probably knew the story of, of Maccabees. Um, you know, little things like that. Um, other things, it gets harder and harder, right? Um, Rosh Hashanah probably didn't look like Rosh Hashanah for him. He probably wasn't sitting there eating apples and honey on the temple steps, right? right. Um, you know, but perhaps on, on a day of atonement of some kind, um, he knew of the idea of, um, you know, trying to cleanse yourself of, of sins for the year, right? Um, there are certain biblical references to holidays that he would have understood from a second temple point of view. You know, they are, I guess, architecturally similar to what we have built now in modern Jewish religion and modern Jewish holidays, but there's room for discussion there. Um, what I would say is that the best way that you can, a, a Christian can appreciate Ju Jesus's Judaism is to befriend and not proselytize Jews, 
right? Mm -hmm. Is to pretend that you are, if you're standing in front of a Jew, pretend that you're standing in front of someone who is the same religion as your Lord and Savior, your Messiah. Judaism was good enough for Jesus. It's good enough for us. That is a way to appreciate Jesus' Judaism, to respect Jesus' Judaism, to say Jesus was not a Christian. Christianity formed around his ideas, and there are tales about him that led to, you know, certain Christian belief, but Jesus was Jewish. And so to respect that and not try to eradicate it, and that's one of the things that I just, I went on a few rants this week about how proselytizing is genocide, of mm -hmm. which I truly believe, you know, there's, there's more than one way to eradicate a people. Proselytizing is one of them. But why would Christians want to eradicate the religion of their central figure? Right. Right. If you destroy Judaism, you destroy a piece of Jesus. That reminder is what I would have people have to take away to, to engage with the Jewishness of Jesus um, is to respect Jews around and vice versa, you know, an attempt to understand their holy beliefs and holy rituals that have evolved just as they would have if Jesus were born in, you know, 2022, he'd be raised in a Jewish day school and he would get his bar mitzvah and he would celebrate Passover. You know, um, the same thing would happen depending on the era and what kind of Judaism he was. And I think that it's a complicated thing for Christians to sort of grasp, but at the same time, it's also a very simple request. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Respecting other people's religions as real religions and not incomplete religions. Not yes. hard to do, actually. Yeah. Yes. Wonderfully, wonderfully said. And one of the issues that we do encounter, right? Jews are not unfulfilled. We're not incomplete. We're Jews. And we're good that way. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for asking. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that's right. a good note to go out on on this episode. So Rabbi Mike, thank you again so much for sharing. Thank you for your book. Let's talk. A Rabbi Speaks to Christians out available to order now. We'll have a link to it. Please go get it if you want to hear more about this. But this has just been lovely. Thank you so much. As always, so much fun to speak to you guys. It's just a joy. Thank you so much. Yeah. Ian, will you sign us off? Sure thing. Friends, this has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Joe, Ian, and Rabbi Mike, and we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor? is a part of the Disruptive Disciples podcast network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schomel. Performed by Joe Schoenwolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Email us at wthackisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptivedisciples, on Twitter at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to pillow talk, merch, signed cards, custom essays, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and... Give some love to the Jewish people in your life today, friends. <laughs>